Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanti Show. From Ensign Gorkosigan back to Admiral Naismith and several terrifying steps. I'm Paul. I'm Trishia. I'm Kate. And I'm Anne. And we're talking about today on Reading Rangers, the board game by Lois McMaster Bujold. Hooray! And today on Reading Rangers, we do have a special guest sit- sitting in the Siege Perilous, and that would be Anne Lyle. Hello, Anne. Hi, Paul. Hi, Anne. I already fangirled on you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Fangirling or fanboying is encouraged and accepted here on Skiffy and Fancy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I've embarrassed myself many times on this podcast. Online as well as offline. We put the fan in Fancy. <laughs> <laughs> we put the fan in Fancy at Skiffy and Fancy. All right, Paul, tell us what we just read. We just read The Vore Game, which is a 1991 novel by Lois McMaster Bujold. 1990, it won the 1991 Hugo Award for Best Novel. It is the sixth novel in the series that she wrote. Chronologically, it comes after The Warrior's Apprentice and before See It Again. So we're not reading them in publication order as a reminder to our listeners, because otherwise we would have done a couple novels that are in the future of this novel, like Brothers in Arms. So... The Vor game basically takes up from the end of the Warrior's Apprentice. Miles has returned back to uh, Barriar and has gone through all of his Imperial Academy. We don't see any of that except for the tail end where Miles, Ivan, and the rest of the recruits get to find out what their exciting assignment is going to be. Ivan winds up getting a cushy job in the capital. One of Miles' friends gets on a ship, which Miles really wants. And Miles, well, he gets to be meteorologist at a weather station at a base devoted to Arctic training at the northern pole of Barriar. This is not what he expected. He tries to worm his way out of this. It fails miserably. And so he's shipped off to the most benighted part of Barriar, and that's saying a lot given some parts are radioactive still, and learns that the base is commanded by a Martinet lunatic. The former meteorologist is a drunkard, and the rest of the base is sometimes engaged in lethal practical jokes. Poor Miles nearly dies getting his little runabout get sunk in mud because he didn't read all the manual. Poor Miles. He survives by the skin of his teeth. But then when there's determined that there's chemical weapons that might be leaking, the base commander freaks out, decides to go for the full-on let's-shoot-people military discipline. A mutiny occurs, and to basically get out of this, Miles is jumped into IMSEC for a while, and then shipped off as a Imperial agent of under uh, Simon Ilian into space, which is good, except, well, he winds up getting himself into trouble right away in the Hagen Hub. People are trying to kill him. There's a bounty put on his head. 
which is weird because you could bid on these bounties out there. Really strange politics in this book. And in the midst of trying to free himself, he finds that the Dendari mercenaries are kicking around, but under new management, which is a surprise to Miles because he was the manager. And, well, a certain young emperor who's decided to try to give up his duties is also out here and is employed as basically a light bulb changing slave. So Miles has to not only rescue Gregor, but he has to hook up with the Gendari Mercenaries, figure out what political plot's going on, hint, involves the seed again, trying to invade, and save the day. It's a tangled mess that is even worse than the previous novel for Miles trying to jump around factions and trying to deal with murderous uh, femme fatales, mutinous captains, unhappy crew, and trying to get the Emperor to do what he's actually supposed to do. So, in the end, Miles goads the Emperor back into service, stops the invasion in his tracks, and gets everybody back to the planet. And, oh yeah, and the Dendari mercenaries are enfolded into uh, Gregor's service. The end. Well done. So, the uh, first six chapters of this book, the part at Camp Permafrost, that was my introduction to Lois McMaster Bujold and the whole Vorkosigan series. And I fell in love with it, and I was delighted when I saw later that that had turned into a novel. I didn't realize at the point. I had read it in Analog Magazine, and I was delighted to see it was expanded into a novel, and then I realized, hey, there's a whole series, and got to catch up on everything. So that was great. The novella, the six chapters at Camp Permafrost called The Weatherman, was nominated for a nebula, and the whole book, The Vore Game, did win the Hugo Award that year. So this is a high-quality book. Uh, it's tremendous fun to read. It starts a little slow, and by the end, you know, the momentum... Well, actually, the momentum really picks up when he goes to the Hagen Hub and turns into Admiral, Admiral Naismith again. And after that, it's, uh, you know, the tensions and the stakes keep raising and raising, and... It's just wonderful to see how it all convolutes and finally straightens out again. So does he add a new identity every book? Because if so, that's awesome. <laughs> because he's himself. <laughs> he's Admiral Naismith, and now he's Victor Rothko. Did I say it right? Rothko? 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 Yeah. So does he? if he adds a new identity every book, I am super duper excited. <laughs> and not exactly, but he keeps finding more layers, I would say. More layers to himself and how he interacts with the universe around him. Eventually, he's just so visible in both his roles. Yeah, that adding another role just wouldn't be believable because like, oh God, another uh, mutant. I know he's not a mutant. From Barriar running around? Oh, it has to be Miles <laughs> Yeah. Although, now thinking about that, Spoilers. <laughs> I, th I think mm. I think Trisha and I know what I'm talking yes. about. We're yes, not going indeed. to tell Kate what that means. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, spoilers. Anyway, Anne, are you also a first time Vorkosigan reader, or am I the only newbie this time? Um, no. I I read Ethan of Athos many years ago, probably when it came out. I love that book. I picked it up because the premise looked interesting. Um, I wasn't really into like military SF at the time. And then I, d I don't know really how it happened. It's about the same time I met Paul, actually, at Convergence in 2013. I started at the beginning and I had a long time to wait for my plane back. 
and I just kept downloading them on my iPad. <laughs> I, was, I basically just binge read the first few because they're all quite short compared to modern day novels. You know, they're only like 70, 80,000 words, maybe. They're quite small. And so I have actually read the entire series all the way through, but only once. So some of them are a bit more fuzzy in my mind than others. So if there's a point where you guys want to seriously spoil... Just tell me and I'll go sit in my corner for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I think we had a pretty delicate dance when when we did Bariar uh, before, and I think we did it successfully. So I think we may drop some hints or things with double meanings, but I, I don't think you'll need to go away. Yeah, we don't want to steal the conversation. So Trish, what were your first impressions of the book? Well, I just told you. <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, that's right. Kate. Well, I have to admit, this is my least favorite so far. Although I really liked the first six chapters, Camp Permafrost. I was down for a whole book of that. But, you know, I love The Thing and I love At the Mountains of Madness is my favorite Lovecraft. So I'm always down for a little Arctic craziness. And <laughs> the, the scene where Miles is trapped underground in the tiny ship, or in, no, it's, it's basically like a giant tent under the mud. I have raging claustrophobia, and so that just drove me right around the bend. That's not why this oh is my. not my favorite book. <laughs> um, <laughs> I appreciate when someone can do that to me. Mad respect. But once he got into space, I kept thinking of, I, I kept feeling like I was reading Bio of a Space Tyrant. <laughs> if anyone remembers those. Pierce Anthony, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I really, I found our femme fatale, Camilo, really two-dimensional and not that interesting. I love the stuff with Miles and Gregor, and I love that we finally get Gregor as a, a character, you know, with some agency, even though he's using it all wrong. That just makes him more interesting. And it was great to see Elena and her husband and revisit the Dundari mercenaries, but I was just not into the plot that much. And like I said, the villainess, so that's my first impression. <laughs> and? Um, I've been listening to the previous week about The Warrior's Apprentice, and I kind of feel the same as um, Alex did about... These are kind of some of my less favourite books in the series. I really enjoyed the first two with Cordelia and Arrow, and I enjoyed the later books, but I always find it slightly implausible how easily Miles convinces everybody he's an admiral when he's only 17. <laughs> so... <laughs> So they're, they're really, really fun, but there's a bit of a credibility gap there for me. I like The Warrior's Apprentice better, mm -hmm. partly because it was implausible. It was just, you know, it was a ride. You know, if you think about all the science fiction we enjoy, a lot of it is implausible. And that, what I'm really loving about this is what a crazy character Miles is becoming. But I, I, liked, I liked the previous book better. As for me, this is my second with the series listening to on Audible. I, I read this one 20 some odd years ago <laughs> when I discovered forecasting and it started, it just started going through in chronological order. Bam, 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 bam. I had read this in the day back on the heels of the, of the previous novel. And as it turns out, I'm listening to this not too many weeks removed from the previous novel. And it does suffer a little bit by comparison. I mean, as good as the war game is, it's not Barry R. Funny enough, Barrier was actually written after this. <laughs> and Barrier is probably my favorite so far, except for the Cordelia book. Yeah, I, I think this might be slightly that weird artifact of being written and placed temporarily out of order. I mean, she... She got better later. She got better later. And we're not at the real, real, real high points of the series yet, which is for me 
things like mirror dance. I didn't remember how two-dimensional was the phrase used, the femme fatale was. And okay, I guess I suppose I suppose we're spoiling it. And just how easily it's like, oh, you're being conned all along felt a little like, oh, really? That just seemed, there was no setup for that at all. I mean, yeah, the emperor has been dealing with politics all his life, but it felt a little weird just to suddenly, like, aha, I knew this all along. Seemed like a bit of a rabbit out of the hat in dealing with Kivolo and, and their schemes, which were fun until the point is like suddenly, like, yeah, you had no chance whatsoever of pulling these off whatsoever. So that kind of makes a bit of a wet firecracker for the situation. I didn't remember the weatherman that well, and I really liked the stuff on Carroll Island. Carroll Island was a fascinating bit for me for putting Miles in a very bad situation where he has to do a job and everything is against him doing it. And he still manages to persevere even though he gets buried, which actually slight illusion. There's going to be a claustrophobic incident too, actually, in the future, but not to Miles. And I was thinking of those incidents when it is like, oh God, if blank, the blank, the blank, the blank... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to, to spoil that here. It's like, oh, real, oh, and yeah. So I enjoyed the beginning, and the middle is okay. The best stuff in this novel after the Weatherman is Miles basically trying to get Gregor back on task. And I mean, it's interesting cousin dynamic because Miles is technically in line for the throne if something were to happen to Gregor, but he's so implausible. A candidate for the throne that he's really not a threat to Gregor Ivan is, but that's yeah. I love that the dynamic that they worked up together when they were basically fooling Kavula. Yes, when uh, you know Gregor Gregor fed him this persona, and they've known each other for so long that Miles picked up on exactly what Gregor was doing. Was just like, yes, I am the crazy. He's basically what every <laughs> what um, the Lannisters think Tyrion is. You know, he was yeah, playing right. that kind of role, and it was it was beautiful. I, I, I see inf- inspiration for Tyrion all over Miles, and makes me happy. <laughs> now, I do wonder if Martin had read uh, the Red of Orkazigan books. That's interesting. Yeah. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't surprise me. That would be interesting if Tia... Well, she's winning Hugo's all over the place. I'm sure she's got his attention. <laughs> Well, at this time, in 1990, 1991, he's writing Beauty and the Beast. He's not writing a lot of science fiction and fantasy. He hasn't, he hasn't come back to the fold, as it were, yet. But he certainly could have been reading. But he could have been reading, yes. I thought Game of Thrones came out in the early 90s, though, didn't it? The first Game of Thrones books doesn't come out till 97, I believe. Was it 96? Because I discovered Game of Thrones because it came up on the Nebula ballot, as did uh, Kate Elliott's King's Dragon. <laughs> so I discovered Kate Elliott that same year, getting back into Martin. To that point, the only Martin I consumed was the TV series and Nightwings. Yeah, you're right. It's 96. She says, gra- grabbing the, a Game of Thrones from her bookshelf. Yeah, but we know how slow George writes. So. <laughs> right? <laughs> he could have been planning it when the Hugos came out, you know? And it might not have been a conscience influence, if I can put on my Harold Bloom hat for a second. <laughs> right, well, you know, so-called Napoleon complexes are not unique. <laughs> but, you know, no, I don't see Napoleon complex in Miles. No, I was, I meant more the short, brilliant thing, not the uh, world conquest thing. Okay, yeah. Not the, I've got to compensate, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to interrogate that a bit. Now we've gone into general discussion, listeners. I mean... Miles talks to Gregor about this one point and Gregor asks how different Naismith is from Miles and Miles points out that 
he's bound by the strictures of the Vore culture, whereas Naismith is not, which sounds very Napoleon. Like, I'm going to do what I want because I'm smart enough to do it is very Napoleonic. Mm-hmm. Like when he's warning his dad, Naismith has a subordination problem. <laughs> 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 and that's, you know, news to absolutely no one. But <laughs> Right. Surprise. <laughs> The other thing I really loved about Camp Permafrost chapters was how he handled the situation with the crew being ordered to clean up that incredibly hazardous accident site. Mm-hmm. And the way he maneuvered the Martinet. <laughs> that was maybe the most, uh, what that kind of character would do, you know, the most Miles thing in this book was that. And it was a learning experience for him. And it was something with genuine risk. And my heart was in my mouth. I mean, I knew because there's all these other books that he was going to survive it, but there was still that sense of jeopardy. And just because he survives it doesn't mean he doesn't, you know, <laughs> lose some appendages to frostbite or anything. So that that was definitely the high point of the drama for me. Well, it's probably the biggest moral dilemma in the book um, where he really struggles with you know, not what the smart thing to do is, but what the right thing to do is. Uh, you know, he's he's pretty sure that he's going to lose his career if he does this, but he decides that he has to do it anyway if, if, to to stand up against Metzov. And, you know, I, I said early in my early reaction that the first part was slow, but I did not mean slow as in boring. It was a slow build. It really had an effective ending and uh, to that section and it was just really um really well done how you know how he thought about things and the little things about you know the so-called greeky minorities were yes. looking at him and that made them all the more reluctant to go into that uh, contaminated place there there are just so many little touches all through that section through the book too but yeah that just that standing standing alone story by itself was just wonderful i i did like the world building because you guys all know more about world building <laughs> that we get to see it see revealed about barrier and about the rest of the world in this book i mean greek minorities and their barrier is not just all russians right i mean we had gotten <laughs> hints about that but here we really get a sense of barrier is much more of a cosmopolitan place with internal divisions and riv and uh rivens as uh we had thought it was because when when Miles is talking with somebody about oh well what would happen if Gregor left and about all the different factions that would spring up under the, under the various auspices and it'd be a complete and absolute mess it's just like we got the sense that Barrio was was a viper's nest of competing nobles before but here we get a sense that it's not just the nobles that are competing but there are whole sections of society that are not quite well meshed with each other because we've had such crappy emperors like the Mad Emperor Yuri, and we've had precarious regencies, and there's fault lines in Beriarian culture that we get to actually get to see interrogated a little bit. I would have liked more of that, but we actually get the sense that Beriar is not a monolith, whereas the rest of the galaxy thinks they're just all, they're faceless automaton soldiers, which is an interesting contrast. The Beriars themselves are very, very dangerously held together whereas to the rest of the galaxy they're a minor growing menace that i mean they're not the set again because the set again can basically step on anybody but the very yarns are becoming players on the galactic scene and the politics of the hagen hub and the set again plot to basically try to 
move in by using proxies is I like those political dynamics. I, I mean, Miles's role in that is not as clear as it was back in the previous novel where we where we can see how the blockade and how he's playing both sides work here. It's more he's much more improvising, just trying to survive more and get Gregor back more than actually trying to solve the problem. He's trying to solve the problem in the course of doing other things rather than actually sending his mind to it, if that makes sense. Well, and the, um, the different ethnicities and interest groups within Bariar really just kind of make it more Russian, if you think about it. Mm, like an empire, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've been thinking about Russia a lot lately, not just because of what's going on in our current world, but I'm also reading a book about the Russian Revolution right now, but it's more about the civil side rather than the revolutionaries. And it reminds me, you know, the Russian Empire at that time encompassed Poland, Ukraine. Um, there were still Cossacks. I mean, there were a lot of different cultures under that Russian rule. So I was really delighted to see that Barrier is that much like the Russian Empire was. It made it a lot more interesting. Because it's the same problem I have with fantasy. I A lot of epic fantasy I get annoyed with because the people I find least interesting, I, I'm sick of the nobility. I'm sick of aristocracy. <laughs> I don't find it romantic. <laughs> You know, I'm a I'm a raging populist, <laughs> uh, not the Steve Bannon kind, but you know, I'm more interested in stories about little people, and so I I'm, I'm really hoping we get to see more of that in future books. You don't have to tell me if there is or not, but that's my little that's my little newbie hope. I would love to see more people from the other cultures become characters and um, have their backgrounds explored. I hope we get to see some peasants. <laughs> uh well, you haven't read uh. Mountains of Mourning yet, have you? No, I have not. Which which is actually set before this novel. Okay. And was written before this novel, too. It was written before this novel. I'm not going to spoil the plot, but basically Miles has to go into the backcountry. Oh, goody! To deal with the problem that his father sends him to deal with. Is that the next book we're going to read, or no? I'm not quite sure. We <laughs> okay. have to discuss, we'll have to discuss that offline. Right. Because it's a novella, and it's combined with a couple others, and so the timing's a little weird, but... Say I'll have to discuss offline what we're going to read next, but eventually I'd like to because it is one of the best things in the series. It will illuminate some things for everyone. I will say that there is a person from another culture who becomes very important in a following book, and we get quite a bit of that person's backstory, too. I like how easily Miles was able to pretend to be from his mother's culture. I want to know what a Baden accent sounds like, though. Well, I think they're like American, aren't they? Flat and kind of nasal, maybe? Yeah. The Batons are kind of supposed to be like technophilic, mad American types, so... Okay. And then the Setagandans, are they, are they human or are they an alien species? Because sometimes they sound so monolithic. Like a hive mind. <laughs> this is the Sedigandans being the largest, most expansive culture in the entire series is they're not a hive mind. They're they're a complex, weird empire. Oh, so Great Britain? Sorry, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with high technology to boot. I mean, yeah, if they're Great Bit Britain then From the Barrieran point of view. <laughs> I was thinking more Chinese from my limited knowledge of China. Okay. Mm. Yeah, they're they're not they're not Western at all in their kind of cultural vibe. No, they have that they have they have their own their own stuff. There is a the Sedaganda is the 
novel where we actually get to see inside and just see how strange things are there. And but that's that's also further down the line. Here that here and in a lot of novels are just presented as a as a big bad big enough that if you noticed in this novel that basically this whole little exp- expedition they're going can be attributed to a few bad apples who are just going to get killed for their troubles. That gives you a sense of how big the empire is if this whole big operation to take the Hagen Hub is just a tiny little tiny little push of their finger. The Baryarans are scared of them not only because, well, they conquered Baryar for so long, it's because they are freaking huge with lots and lots of planets and lots and lots of technology and resources. They are to be feared for very, very good reasons. So, more like the Empire of Star Wars then. Yes, but an empire so with so many different running parts that they always don't run in one direction, which makes them even scarier because they have there's lots of factions within the Empire all wanting to do various things. And said again, there's a novel if you want to learn more about them from the inside. And we will get to that book in time. But back to this book. Um, <laughs> Who won the war game? Well, the the, the, the Baryarians did, obviously. The, the, the Setagandian plot fails. Gregor goes back. The Femme Fatale is defeated. And Miles, Miles gets a new job as liaison to the Dindari mercenaries who are now uh, working for the Baryarians. And this, this novel is also a lesson to Miles. Like, don't create a mercenary force and just walk away. Because bad things will happen when you when you leave a large military mercenary company unattended. I mean, he's obviously not read his Italian Renaissance history, for example, <laughs> mercenary condottieri running around doing bad things. What is Earth's history about Blackwater? <laughs> well, there's a very nice little paragraph uh, where Gregor is just finding out about all this stuff with the uh, <laughs> with the Dindari who have turned back to. Ozer and mercenaries, um, and uh, you know the people who had been waiting for Miles were let down when he never came back. And he says, "The king shall return, eh?" In an undertone to Miles, <laughs> and Miles says, "You need to learn from this too, because it's a very nice parallel for what Gregor had been setting up his whole planet to do." Yes, I mean you can certainly understand that Gregor would have wanted to walk away from. All that, all, you know, his ceremonies and his isolation. And at that point, he still was pretty much a ceremonial emperor and not so much of a policy setter. So you could understand him wanting to walk away. But at the same time, as as we've just discussed, there would have been a huge power vacuum and war probably on Bariar if they hadn't gotten him back. Civil War, the Setagandans probably make a play to take Komar. And best case scenario, Bariar is left with one planet and and feuding along. Worst case scenario, the set again is reinvade. Right. Recolonization? Yeah. Oh yeah. Now, now and now the Barriarians are used to more high technology, so not quite so backwarded, so it's an even more appealing place for the set than it was previously, which where they were ruling over nineteenth century savages, basically. Right. But not only did the Barriarans win the war game, they also win friends because they come help other people in the Hagen Hub and suddenly they're not the pariah that got, you know, tried to invade Escobar and got beaten down 20 years ago. Now they're the saviors of the Hagen Hub and gain hugely in respectability and alliance-ability. That's very, very, very true. They they kind of clean up their reputation. I mean, it's easy when you've got, on one side you have Barry, on the other side you have the, the mighty Sending again Empire, being friends with Barry Ari is a much 
better proposition because Barry are might be militaristic and crazy, but they're not huge and giant and squash you like a bug. They might actually notice you. <laughs> right. They right. might actually notice you. <laughs> well, I was interpreting the title a little differently, I guess, because uh, the game I was looking at was between Miles and Gregor, the two boars in the story. Not not so much like whether whether Miles should be trying to usurp Gregor because Gregor wants out, but um, just uh, trying to make Gregor into the person he should be, which I think um, it would, looks like it was successful. But Gregor might be in for even more of a struggle now because his heart's in the game now. And when he tries to go back to Barriar, I can see him trying to become more than just a figurehead and running against all the, the old boys club who's used to running things for him. Oh, yes. I can see where that's going to be very, very interesting. So this is almost just like the opening moves. <laughs> you also have the, the, the whole theme running through it of uh, sort of noblesse oblige. Yes. Starting with Miles stripping off yeah. and going and standing mm-hmm. with, the, with the techs. Yeah. Um, and, and using his status as a vor to stop the, the mad commandant. And, and then later it becomes about Gregor's responsibility as a noble to you know, just go back there and do his job and not think, not want to uh, have to do what he wants to do. Either way, I kept wondering when the bride thing came up if there was some kind of terrible arranged marriage set up for him back home or if that was just something that he came up with on the fly. <laughs> Spo- spoilers, I honestly, I don't honestly remember. I mean, Gregor will eventually get married. Well, he better. <laughs> To, to someone of his choice, but I won't mention who that is or how that comes about because it becomes part of a political plot. But I don't actually recall there's actually a terrible choice for a bride. So he was just playing into a stereotype. I love it. Well, Gregor did mention when he was talking about the reasons that he was running away, he did mention that a bunch of the generals and politicians had been dropping broad hints about how he ought to get married and sire six little forbaras. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. I mean, given the problems with the previous administration and just having one child, one child ruling basically in charge with a regent and a very, very precarious uh, political religion, enough that you get a, you get the Vidarian trying to take over. Yes, Gregor getting heirs and getting those heirs up to age where they could take over is very, very important if you're going to deal with a aristocratic feudal society. Without heirs, you're dead. And if you have too many heirs, you're dead. It's it's kind of you got to navigate those waters carefully. So you don't want a secession war if you have no heirs or have a secession war if two brothers decide they both want the throne and there are people willing to back them. You need heirs or an arrow. <laughs> I mean... That society lucked out big time that they they got the regions that they got because Errol is one in a million and he doesn't show up in every generation. <laughs> no, there's there's a lot of stories about such regions taking power for themselves. Uh-huh. I mean, it's Greece's. Uh, I mean, consider. Um, I mean, drop into U.S. politics for a second. Consider. Do you remember George W. Bush? Oh yeah. Uh, do you remember who was Uncle Dick? Yeah. Yes. You know what Dick Cheney's first job was? trying to find George W. Bush the vice president. Yeah. And he eventually said, well, pick me. <laughs> that's, that's how it's how it happened. It is. So, yeah. Errol could have easily 
tried to uh, grab the throne. Or Richard III, if we want to use a British uh, example for uh, Anne there. And the princes <laughs> in the tower. He is kind of obvious, isn't he? Or the Mike Flynn route. Here, let's find the one vice president that's worse than you. <laughs> Just to make sure no one tries to topple you. <laughs> King Log, King Stork, anyone? I'm sorry, we shouldn't, talk, we shouldn't talk so much about American politics. I'm sure Anne is sick of it. We're sick of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back to unlikely people to hypnotize everybody. I actually don't have a problem with Miles bringing everyone under his sway because it's pretty well explained that that's what he's been trained to do from birth is charm other people. That's true. The So, you know, Ozer was right to want to space Miles and not even <laughs> interrogate him for fear of uh, contaminating the intelligence section. The problem was he didn't do that soon enough. <laughs> he should have just shot him in right there in the office. <laughs> yeah. The biggest problem of plausibility I have with the novel is just Miles running into Gregor in the detention center. But, you know, you just have to kind of, okay, we need that for the plot and move on. <laughs> yeah. I felt the same way about running into Metzov again. Yeah, I had forgotten completely that Metzov comes back. I thought, oh, yeah, okay, so we're done with this. And he shuffled off the plot. And when he came back, like, I didn't remember that, yeah, he's integral to this plot. Yeah, that was just Dickensian. Right. If you read it as a novel, it kind of makes sense that you would have this Chekhov's character that would pop up <laughs> again. But, you know, for me, reading Weatherman and for a long time and then basically just picking up when I when the novel came out, just basically picking up from there, I was totally shocked when Metzov appeared again. But it was great. I, I, I didn't like it. I'm okay with another podcast. Just this week, they came up with Sulu's Gun. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Sulu's Gun is one that doesn't get discharged by the last act. And I'm, I'm okay with that once in a while. It makes it all feel more plausible, more possible. So I, I would have been fine with Sulu's Gun. Um, it might have given uh, Kavila more room to become an actual character. So I was kind of disappointed. And I didn't need that. But... I kind of felt like um, the the body in the drain was the uh, Sulu's gun of that book. It was like, it went nowhere. Yeah. It was like, it's a great mystery. And oh, no, he hid his pastries and now he's dead because he's an idiot. I'll just say this is not the only time that drains figure as a plot point. And uh, I kind of enjoy the way they keep coming back up again. <laughs> and that's more Tyrion inspiration because who is who is the Lord of the Drain? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh dear. Okay, that's got to be deliberate. <laughs> George would really have to give the speech of a lifetime to convince me that that Miles wasn't an inspiration. <laughs> I want to stick up for Cavillo just a little bit, though. I enjoy her as a evil reflection of Miles. Uh, one of the character, you know, a couple of the characters comment that they're similar in a way, and Miles, of course, is horrified to hear this, and they say, well, it's just that you're both small and kind of twisty. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, you know, she, it's, I think it's interesting that she says that she's been underestimated all her life by everybody except for Miles. 
and Miles, having lived the life he had, was uh, more prepared to see this small, fragile-looking woman as a threat. Uh, I liked that, but I also liked, you know, uh, yes, she was totally selfish, and she misread Gregor completely, but I thought she was a useful character, and she did display a little bit of uh, nuance here and there. But in the end, I love Miles's quote to her where he tells her, your total self-interest didn't make you strong, it made you a rag in the wind. Anybody's to pick up. And that's, you know, illustrates why my part of why Miles believes so much in the Vor Noblesse Oblige. He needs something to believe in and something to act for and something to make the world make sense and what he does make sense. So I really liked that and I loved... <laughs> When he gloated to her about the Dindari being paid three times. Uh, yeah, that was yeah. good. That was very good. Tidy profit. <laughs> that being said, I was ready for her to succeed and become the Empress and finally maybe become a character. I was perfectly prepared. I could see where that would be an interesting story, too. So, But I noticed she didn't get killed off. That's true. So she might yet become a person. I hope so. Uh, there's, there's, you know, with Elena, you know, set aside as kind of a, I won't say minor character, let's say medium character, <laughs> and Cordelia just part of the backstory now, there's not a, a good, strong woman character to, to balance out the sausage fest, so. Yeah, we haven't met Ellie Quinn yet, have we? No, we haven't. <laughs> no. Or Karen. Or, or Karen. Yeah, there are, there are a few younger women coming along in later books. But not, not unfortunately, not yet. So I'll be patient. They're coming. I'm, I mean, part of this whole society and what, now that I've read every novel, I can see what Lois is doing. I mean, the story of Barry R is partly a story of patriarchy being confronted. I mean, it's a very, very slow change, but it's an exorable one that... It's basically initiated by Cordelia, but it's a very, very slow process. I mean, change doesn't happen overnight in any culture, and it doesn't happen in Derriar either. So those strong female characters are unfortunately depressingly realistic in their scarcity. In their scarcity, thank you. Because Barriar is a sausage fest. I did like that Cavila uh, was was looking to Cordelia as sort of her pathfinder. Yes, her role model. She did it. I can do it. <laughs> that was interesting. And that had a lot of potential. I'm not sure it was realized. It had a lot of potential. To the point where I was imagining a scene where she meets Cordelia someday and how interesting that could be. So, though I was mostly not hugely delighted by this book, I'm still down for the rest of them. Because I can see, I can see so many potentials and I'm absolutely anxious to see which way all this goes. I'm I'm terribly impressed. I'm checking the wiki, and sadly, it doesn't look like Kavila returns. Paul, you don't need to have said that. She can still <laughs> show up sometime in a short story or something. <laughs> right? She can be in another story, as long as Lois keeps eating her vegetables and doing what her doctor says. <laughs> keeps writing. There are lots of uh, assassination plots against Miles in future books, and you know you can head canon that maybe maybe she had a hand in some of them somewhere. <laughs> Off stage, yes. yes, because yes, she does get rather uh, pwned by Miles and, <laughs> and and Gregor to be precise. Yeah. to be honest, is like they make a good team. Gregor 
Gregor and Miles. They make a good comedy team, too. (laughs) (laughs) And, And given that we have the Emperor is so exposed here and away from the throne, away from the trappings of power. It's really the only way you'd ever really get a good tag team of Miles and Gregor is in a situation like this where Gregor is basically on the run from his own responsibility. So this is his this is his fling, as it were, and a chance for Gregor and Miles to to work together. I mean, after this, Gregor's Gregor's got the throne and to try to be as strong an emperor as he can, and Miles well, I don't want to spoil what Miles is going to happen on his own path. It's going to be a convoluted, interesting one, that's for sure. Well, they certainly continue interacting with each other. Well, they have to. And, yeah. But you don't have any more buddy comedies, really. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you don't want to keep doing the same thing every book. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, well, th- that's one of the strengths of this of this series is, or, or weakness, depending on how you think about it. I mean, the templates of the books differ enormously from survival on a planet to political intrigue to space opera machinations to this is i guess you could call this one the buddy comedy of the series <laughs> i mean miles does wind up having a double act relationship with ivan going forward in the series ivan usually being uh, the butt monkey to miles <laughs> usually but not always the donkey <laughs> but the donkey that Miles can trust. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I, I, Ivan doesn't always lose. And that and that makes me feel good that, yeah, that eventually Ivan does come to him. But for a long time, yes, Ivan is Miles' donkey. So they have an interesting, they have an interesting relationship. I had commented in an earlier book that on the reread that Ivan really came off lousy and as, as, as basically as a, almost like a sexual predator. And that made me really happy here. We can restart the edges already to start to be worn off of that, of that retconning as well. That, you know, he's not quite as uh, slimy as I now see in those earlier books. And it takes a while for him to get his own spotlight. But because Miles is just such an incandescent supernova of a character that everybody is washed out around him. That That's just the way these novels work. Well, I'm glad he's not just Barney Stinson. <laughs> <laughs> So do we have any final thoughts about the book? And you've been quiet, so we let you have the floor. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the, uh, the the ramping up towards the end and the, the whole comedy of everybody double-crossing one another and stuff. One thing I, I noticed in the world building, there's a, there's a little bit of like infodumpy stuff where uh, she talks about the, the weapons on the ships. Oh, yes. Uh, and it's like this whole little history of an arms race. And I kind of like that because um, usually it's just like, oh, we're, we've, we've got these space lasers and they've got space lasers and, you know, shields and whatever. And it's just like a, that's what they've got. You you have this sense that yeah there there really is a space arms race going on here with them all trying to come up with better technologies to get around whatever the latest shielding capabilities are. It felt a little foreshadowy too in that they're like oh eventually we're just going to have to get back to boarding and cutlasses because we're going to have exhausted everything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it kind of reminds me of uh, ice pirates. I'm I'm down for some. Some buckling and some swashing. <laughs> Trish, final thoughts? I know that some of the later novels have some more depth of characters and some some really wonderful, wonderful plots. I, I love Memory so much and uh, Mirror Dance uh, and A Civil Campaign. 
but this remains one of one of my favorites, uh, just because it was my first, and I just love how crazy everything gets before <laughs> it finally resolves. Miles and the Jenga Tower. <laughs> Kate, final thoughts? I absolutely adore Miles. I um, hope to see more of Elena again. I loved the little father and son scene we got toward the end, because that was also quite funny. Mm-hmm. The uh, the balancing act that Miles had to do between um, these people don't know I'm Barry Yarn, let alone your son, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, there are lots of things to like, uh, but I've liked other books in the series better. Okay, so I want to thank our listeners for uh, listening to uh, us talk about the board game. And before we go, we'll turn the microphone back over to Anne, who can talk about her work and where to find her on the internet. Right. Uh, so if you're into Elizabethan alternate history kind of swashbuckling stuff, um, I've written three novels, starting with The Alchemist of Souls, which you can find, I don't know, Amazon, online, the usual places. Um, and on social media, I'm mostly just on Twitter as, uh, boringly, Anne Lyle, all one word, tweet about I don't know, furry animals and Lego and general silly geekiness. I'm just going to put in a plug since she's being all modest. The books she's talking about are absolutely fantastic. And if you're into Shakespeare or Renaissance roleplay or anything like that, they're an absolute delight. And uh, it's been a privilege being on the air with you, Anne. Oh, thank you. With that, listeners, thank you for listening and see you. Thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at SkiffyInfanti at gmail.com, on Twitter at SkiffyInfanti, on Facebook at The Skiffy Infanti Show, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash SkiffyInfanti. Our intro and outro music comes from The Launch by Cronux. You can find out more about their music at freemusicarchive.org.